Hey everyone, welcome to Let's Get Real with Sandra and Friends, a workplace consortium podcast brought to you by Relogix. I'm excited to be sharing conversational musings about current events and how we envision the ever-changing world of work. I'm Sandra Panera, Director of Workplace Insights at Relogix. With 25 years of hands-on experience, I help value engineer global workplace portfolios and employee experiences by aligning workplace analytics with corporate real estate needs. Have any questions, comments, or suggestions for future podcasts? Please drop me a line at podcast at relogics.com. In this episode, I'm talking with Jamie Hodari, CEO and co-founder of Industrious, the highest rated workplace as a service company. Under his leadership, Industrious has grown to over 150 locations across more than 50 cities since its founding in 2013 and is recognized by commercial real estate leaders for its asset light model based on landlord partnerships rather than traditional leases. Most recently, Industrious was named one of America's 500 fastest growing companies by Inc. Magazine and also appeared on Forbes' annual list of best startup employers. Hodari holds a JED from Yale Law School and an MPP from Harvard University, as well as a BA from Columbia University. Hey, Jamie, very excited to have you today as my guest. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Thank you for having me. So I run Industrious. We're, we're a workplace provider in about 65 cities. We, we allow people to basically buy their workplace experience as a product from us. So we have a co-working brand. We do much larger suites for companies. And we also increasingly in a lot of buildings will run all of the shared amenities and experiences for the whole building. We're about 10 years old. We are based in the U.S., and are still, that's our largest market, but we are in 10, 11 countries now. So what inspired you to start Industrious? Well, I, I was in a very different field at the time that, that I and my co-founder launched Industrious. I was running a uh, an organization that, that, that basically launched and, and runs hybrid universities in East Africa, where you watch your lectures at night at home. And then you do your homework in class with your classmates. And because of that flipped classroom model, we were able to deliver a thousand dollar a year accredited U.S. Um, college degree in Rwanda and now in, in, in more places. Um, and I really loved that job. I was not thinking about moving on from that at all. Um, but our largest funder was IKEA, the furniture company. And I had a meeting with the president of IKEA in the U.S. And our U.S. offices were quite small. The vast majority of our staff was was on site. And so in the U.S., we were in a shared workplace. And I went to prepare for the meeting. And the conference room's table, the conference room table is sticky. And there's kind of like, I don't know, it just was, it was not a great vibe. There were light bulbs out. So I moved it to a Le Pen Quotidien, the, the coffee shop chain at the last second. And that night I just was so upset. I couldn't believe that I'm paying for a workplace and it didn't meet the sort of standard of professionalism where I was comfortable holding an important meeting there. And my co-founder who was my best friend from growing up had had a very similar experience. And we were like, let's just do this as a side project. If we think there's a white space for a more professional, more elegant kind of flex workplace option, there must be 50,000 companies that want that same thing. We launched as a side project and for better or worse, it really took off from the very first moments. And so after about a year of trying to run both organizations side by side, 
it became totally unsustainable and I had to leave that role. The organization's called Kepler and have been running industrious full time ever since. Wow. That's, uh, that's quite impressive. It's always cool that when you hear stories of people starting a business because of personal experience, somehow there's a, that connection just makes it that much more different where you kind of, you recognize that there's a gap in the market because you yourself are looking for that experience and it doesn't exist. And then you go ahead and you do it and boom, overnight you have a, you have a business. <laughs> I totally agree. I, I, I think it has been helpful over the years because a lot of times people start a business because they see a business they're you know, they're in business school and they're like, okay, this particular sector has great margins and good valuations. And, and then you are building for some kind of, you know, external valuation metric or X, Y, Z and when the origin of a business, when the sort of stimulating moment for starting it is about an experience, a, a, a desire to give a customer something that you yourself wanted, that can be very grounding and helpful, I think. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you often refer to co-working and, and flex working when you were describing sort of what you do. Is there a difference between those two? I think Flex at this point is the name for the broad category of basically products that, again, allow people to flexibly buy their workplace experience as a product from someone on a subscription rather than having to sign a long-term lease, build out the space themselves, run it themselves. And then co-working at this point would be the name of one of the products that sit underneath that, which would be highly productized space for teams of 20 and below where you share a lot of amenities. If you're a six-person team, you might have your own private lockable office, but the conference rooms, the cafe areas, the focus rooms, the mother's rooms, things like that, those are much more likely to be shared with other companies. And so once you get past 20, 25 people, if you have, you know, kind of your own separate floor, then usually people wouldn't use co-working to describe that. But if there's a lot, let's say more than 60% of the space over the course of your day that you're accessing is something that other companies are also using. I would think of that as the co-working part of the flex industry. You said Industrious has been around for about 10 years. Have you seen a shift in the last couple of years, especially since the pandemic, in terms of the types of spaces preferred by people? Yes. I'm trying to think how to even describe this succinctly because I think it's so interesting and it doesn't always match what people read in the news. But yes, there's been an enormous number of changes over the last couple of years in both the space types people want and also at the most basic level, the way they conceive of what is their workplace and what is a workplace and how do I use it and what's it for. Can I start with how people are actually using the workplace? And it's easier to describe the physical impacts of that. Sure, sure. There are a good number of people who are working from home full time. That's still not that common, let's say single digits, but there are a lot of people who do it and enjoy it. And, and, and you know, just as there were before the pandemic, yep. there are a small number of people who still go in five days a week in white collar jobs where they're not mandated to, but that works for them. Mm-hmm. And then the vast majority of people, 70, you know, 80% go in a few days a week, but fewer than in the past. Um, and it, they therefore have to pick which days do I go in? What types of things would be best suited for working from home versus the days I come in? And people tend to come in and they want to interact with colleagues. They want to 
see other people. They want a breath of fresh air. They want to go out to lunch. So there's more pressure on interaction space. The little vignette with the couch and the two armchairs, the cafe with the high top tables. But then in a way that a lot of people didn't anticipate, because that was something people said in 2020. When people come back, they're going to want to hang out. There's going to be there's also a lot more demand for private space. Once you have gotten used to being on your Zoom in your, you know, home with very few interruptions, having someone two feet to your right and two feet to your left, and you're trying to do your meeting while you hear them talk about the bad date they had the night before, that becomes really painful. And so there's also a lot more demand than pre-pandemic for little phone booths, little focus rooms, places to retreat to. So I would say if I had to sort of typify it, instead of working in a big benching area at a desk with people to your left or right for 10 hours a day, you're sort of vacillating or moving back and forth between very social spaces and very private spaces. That's uh, quite fascinating, actually, because um, I'm currently in the process of pulling together some benchmarking data from the sensors that we have installed across the globe in all types of industries and spaces. And so, you know, we measure spaces in desk areas or workstation areas, private offices, closed meeting, open collaboration, and, you know, the amenities and support spaces. And the eye opener for me was looking, and we do have a couple of customers that are in the flex slash co-working industry, uh, was this request for private space that I thought, wow, that is, I did not expect that at all. And I thought, well, that's really interesting. And you're kind of seeing that in the private offices as well, especially right now with the return to office sort of objective that's kind of been floating around for the last several months. Um, looking at the distribution of of the people that are coming back. So apart from the fact that occupancy is lower, but looking at the data from the perspective of let's just observe the people who are coming back. What is their preference or how has their preference actually changed? You do see differences like, you know, open workstations, you know, the general sort of open areas are not as well utilized as the closed private areas. So closed meeting room space, uh, amenity and support space, which is, again, more like quiet rooms, nursing rooms, kind of really sort of aimed for one person to just basically sort of separate from the rest of, of the people that are there. Um, and then I think what was interesting, the other part was when I saw that, because this was just like last week, I was looking at the data. When I saw that, I went back and said, well, where did this whole story around, you know, a need for increased open collaboration come from? And I do recall seeing when the pandemic had first started and we were right in the throes of it, you know, in late 2020, early 2021. Again, looking at that small percentage of people that were coming back the preference had definitely shifted towards this open collaboration area. So the cafes, you know, the lunchrooms, kind of the large spaces where you had tons of elbow room and very, very few, if at all, were going into the uh, closed meeting rooms. Private office space stayed fairly consistent throughout the pandemic. So people who had offices obviously felt more comfortable going in because they didn't have to contend with, you know, being exposed to any risk as much as maybe not as much as the people who were, you know, using the workstation. So it certainly explains why we were seeing that difference. But I thought about, well, you know, why was there a shift? Like what happened between 2020, 2021, and then going into 2022 when now we're sort of emerging from the pandemic, not that it's completely gone away, but 
I think the comfort level around how to manage your surroundings has changed somewhat, especially with vaccinations and such too. It's kind of like, um, you know, what, what's changed? And I think the reason for that is back when we were, you know, going through the pandemic and there was still a lot of uncertainty, people had control over their environment. So if you went into an open space, you could control your distancing. You couldn't do that as well in a meeting room because you're in a closed Space And so you think about air quality and circulation and all of that stuff, and that kind of became a little bit more, you know, worrisome. And so fast forward now to 2022 and you're seeing the reverse. You're like, okay, how, like, why? How has that happened? And my suspicion is, is that as more people have become vaccinated, less concern about sort of, you know, being together as we see that with people just kind of, you know, going out into the world and going about their day the demand for the closed space is really to fill the gap, if you will, around what they can't do at home. So if you have, you know, don't have office space at home where you're, you know, you're not disciplined enough to work from home, then you're probably going to go to the office and you're going to want to use a private space because focus, it's about focus work. Uh, and then likewise, if you, if you're going to have meetings, right, it's one of the things that you can't really do well at home is have face-to-face meetings. Yes, you can do them virtually, but occasionally there's, you know, requirements to meet in person. And so those are the scheduled meetings, right? They're not the, you know, the ad hoc sort of water cooler type of conversations that you just have randomly because you happen to be, you know, in the right place at the right time. And so it's fascinating to see that to say, okay, is that really what the purpose of the office is or what it's going to be going into the future, because there's a lot of talk about how it's about, you know, bringing people together to collaborate, to innovate, and that, you know, it's going to be this great social sort of thing. But the data right now, at least, is not showing that. <laughs> so, Well, I, I guess I would say two things. First, I think everything you said resonates for me. And there's also really an emotional component to the off. I mean, there's an emotional component to everything we do in life. And I live on a block in Brooklyn that once a year does a block party. And it's like people talk about it for months in advance. Everyone on the block puts in $50 and we get a bouncy castle and whatever. And it's a famous Brooklyn block party because it starts with bouncy castle and, a you know, clowns. And then it turns into a DJ and dancing at two in the morning and uh and it did live up to that, but I had probably five conversations with people by 10 p.m. who were like, damn, 10 straight hours of socializing. Like, I used to have another five hours of me, but this this is really taking a lot out of me because I think we've all become a little more introverted as a result of the last few years. And so there's also the just mental and emotional tax of, like, constant interaction on the days you're in the office People have less, they're less used to it. I think they have less um, comfort with it. And so that's probably the other one that, that, that we see. The other thing, though, I would say a little bit to counter that point is, you know, sometimes number of minutes spent or number of hours spent, it doesn't capture everything. Like what, what we see for our customers is they might not be spending major portions of their day in those collaborative, open environments. But for me, for example, I have a seven month old daughter and she just, you know, starting about six weeks ago, we could put her little high chair at the table and every night we have dinner for maybe 35 minutes, me, my wife and her. And it's only 35 minutes, 
but it's like the most amazing, most impactful 35 minutes of my day. And so I do think for a lot of people who are going in, they're spending a lot of time in private spaces, but those moments at lunchtime or those moments where they're laughing a little bit and having a moment of levity or a moment of connection, even if on a pure percentage of total time spent, it feels small, I think are very meaningful. And you see that a lot in customer surveys and in what's driving customer behavior right now. They just don't want to spend five hours doing it. Yeah, no, I I totally agree with that. Um, Okay, so let's move on uh, to understanding the customer. So I've been hearing as of late uh, terms or concepts like flight to quality, flight to agility. Um, How do you know what your customers want and what, what do those terms actually mean to you? Flight to quality is definitely a word people are using a lot in real estate right now about, in general, higher quality, you know, fancier, newer office buildings performing better. Um, and, you know, I would kind of position it as maybe a flight to relevancy. Like there are office buildings and work environments that are relevant to people. Either they're very low commute spaces, and so it's a really relevant place for them because they can walk seven minutes and be out of the house or it's a stunning building with lots of great restaurants right at its base, et cetera, so it's worth getting on a 35-minute train for. But you do see that as um, as a pattern. And then what was the second phrase? Yeah, flight to agility. And flight to agility, well, look, I we have obviously been, we're one of the big global flex providers and have been a huge beneficiary of this. 2020 was a very scary time for our business, and then as the vaccine started being distributed, we saw a spike in sales and then a spike on top of a spike. And then next thing we knew, we were selling three times our pre-COVID average sales every month. And that has continued pretty much unabated to today. And I think it's driven by a few different things. It is driven by the fact that companies want agility in the sense that they don't want to sign a 10-year lease and have to plan in cycles that are very sort of not commensurate with the actual day-to-day lived reality of their business. But the other half of the flight to agility, if you define it broadly, is that a lot of the workplace strategies you see companies deploying, more distributed ways of working, hub and spoke models where you might have a smaller than before central office in downtown New York, but then you have a no commute space in Brooklyn and a no commute space in New Jersey. It's very hard to accomplish those via leasing a bunch of space and controlling it yourself. Unless you're J.P. Morgan or, you know, Google and you want to do that for the vast majority, 95% of businesses, you would need some kind of agile partner that can help you buy that as a product on a one-year rolling basis. And then if the Brooklyn office is really taken off, you add more seats there. And if no one's going into the Westchester one, you shrink there. And that ability to basically give your employees something if they want it but in a way that allows you to adjust over time as you're seeing what people are actually doing or if what they're actually doing changes year to year um, is very much, I think, what um, what's in demand right now for businesses. That's interesting. Um, one of the things that that gets asked quite a bit when you know we're speaking to customers and even on previous podcasts you know, that I've done is how do customers who currently have leases that don't have expiry dates coming up for at least another, you know, 10 years or so, you know, what do they do, right? I mean, they might look to co-working and flex space as a great sort of alternative just because of the decentralization 
aspect of how you can offer space to your employees. But then you've got this this central office that you need to deal with. Um, just curious, like, does your company sort of go into those types of spaces and help companies like that sort of figure out what to do with that space? Is there an advantage to sort of doing that for you guys or how, how do you guys deal with that? One piece of context, if my answer seems overly diplomatic, is that one of the main points of differentiation from industrious vis-a-vis our competitors is we don't sign leases with landlords. We do management agreements with them, which means the asset owners and landlords are really our business partners in delivering these spaces. And as a result, I really I think there are a lot of companies that are breaking leases or going to landlords and saying it's just not working for me and we need to figure something out. But maybe I'm not totally in a position where I could advocate for that particular avenue. I think one thing that is possible is finding other uses for the space that companies are on the hook for. And what we do, because what we do is very in demand, is very much a viable option. So, you know, we have been approached by probably 200 companies to say, could you take half my headquarters, rejigger it and make it a co-working space or make it suites that can be rented by the outside world and help us defray some of the cost of this. And, you know, it doesn't always work. It costs a lot to reposition that space. Maybe they don't want to spend that money, et cetera. But in, um, in, in a few cases that has worked out and it's working out really nicely for the company. It's working out nicely for us. So I think that will not be. 90% of how companies deal with the disposition of spaces that are too large that they're not using, but it's a nice niche option, especially if people have offices in high traffic, very desirable areas. Interesting. When it make, as you're talking, it makes me think about a couple of conversations I've had in the past, one with Convene several years ago, actually just before the pandemic, I was at a conference in New York, actually, and, you know, Obviously, Convene's focus has always been more around meeting and collaboration space. And just it was interesting as I started to learn about what they were doing coming out of a company that had quite a bit of, you know, excess real estate, long term leases and thinking about, okay, how cool would it be if a company like that could insert themselves into an organization, convert the space into something that's shareable while the company then could collapse their space into you know, the floors that they need and they want to maintain mostly because of privacy and security concerns that a lot of organizations have about going into flex and co-working spaces. And we'll talk about that momentarily. Um, but then making that space available to their employees so that as they collapse their space, their space is just workstations and offices. But then the the meeting and collaboration or the event space, if you will, kind of is sandwiched in between. So it's not no longer exclusive to just that company. It becomes available to to anybody in the building and even people outside of the building. And I always kind of wondered if that was, you know, something that that companies are are considering, like if there's if there's been talk along those lines because of the fact that for at least from you know some of the conversations that I've heard around, yeah, co-working is great, flex is great because of the financial reasons, but, 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 and usually that is the security and privacy concerns around who's in that space. You know, you don't want your information to, you know, get into the hands of the wrong people or someone listening into a conversation or seeing something that they shouldn't, they shouldn't be seeing. Obviously there's protocols around what what you do and what you don't do when you work in co-working spaces, an employee of, you know, a company. But 
I'm just curious, have you seen anything like that in your in your travels, in your so experience? What you're describing, basically, you know, long term leased controlled space by a company adjacent to flex space that the company's employees can move back and forth between is something that doesn't really have a name, but people have talked about it for a long time. Some people call it fixed flex. Some people call it core flex. Mm-hmm. And I think it has been one of the great promises of our industry. You know, if you're prudential and you don't know if you're going to have 400 people in Denver or a thousand people in Denver by 2028, but you know, you're not going to have zero, then you should sign a lease for 400 people and have the next 400 people worth of space sit side by side and have that be flex space. And I think that is something where industrious has really been the industry leader on that. We do a lot of that. Oftentimes customers don't want to talk publicly about it. So we, I can't like name tons of names, yeah. but we do it in England. We have a big site with one of the largest banks in the world where they have a large space controlled by them and then an adjacent industrial space. And the employees oftentimes don't even know when they move back and forth between the space controlled by industrial and the space controlled by the bank. We have, we are about to announce a really ambitious example of this with one of the biggest tech companies in the world with another of the biggest banks in the world. And, um, you know, it is complicated. It requires a three-way contract between the provider, the landlord, the large occupier. But when you pull it off, it's really special. I do think you are right to flag it. And I think by five years from now, it'll be a very common pattern of usage for, for companies. Like you just have to get over the fact that it's a pain in the ass to set it up and to do get it. it. <laughs> <laughs> but once you do it, it's great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So we, we slightly touched upon security and privacy. So the role of security and privacy, obviously there's a bit of a requirement for shifting the mindset. Uh, I've had this conversation with Mark O'Brien several months ago. He was a guest on our podcast. We talked about, you know, the user of the types of spaces and kind of the small business versus the enterprise and sort of the challenges that are presented by those different user groups. Do you see that one group is more challenged by another? Are they virtually the same or kind of what are you what are you hearing? Yeah, I, I think both physical security and digital security is one of the primary considerations for companies when they work with a flex provider. You know, in the end, you are allowing someone else to control what it feels like to work every day as a Bain employee or as a British Airways employee. And, you know, that's a big thing to hand off to to someone else. And that includes some very central things to, again, the, the, the sort of security of workplace. It has been a long time since I would say that's been a a major obstacle for industrious. At this point, we've had defense contractors, um, you know, the, the largest consulting firms in the world that are used, that are working on very sensitive information. Um, you know, the drone division of, of one of the largest, um, you know, aircraft manufacturers in the world, et cetera. So, uh, you do have to work at it. You have to, you have to sit with them and say, what are your IT security needs and what are your protocols and how do we make sure that you're in a place where that, where, where this works for you. And you do sometimes have to get creative about having those employees be on their own separate network, et cetera. But I have found over time that almost, almost anything is doable. One, one analog for me is in the early days of outsourced manufacturing. You know, we're kind of an outsourcing industry. You're outsourcing your workplace. So people said, okay, well, you can't do outsourced manufacturing for the really important stuff. You could make your tchotchkes for your annual investor meeting, 
And now the iPhone is manufactured by Foxconn. You know, you'd say, look, for logistics, for our really important logistics, we can't have DHL or UPS do it. And now everything that Amazon does, for the most part, goes to UPS, et cetera. So I think in a lot of these B2B outsourcing businesses, there's an era where people say, but there's something so fundamental that we, the customer, need to control. And then eventually the providers get good enough to overcome that objection and say, no, you're going to get just as good of an outcome when you let us do this for you as when you do it yourself. And I think security is one of the things that squarely fits within that dynamic. For sure. For sure. Okay, so let's talk a little bit also about brand, thinking about branding space. So, again, another topic that's come up quite a quite a few times around the difference between having your own space and then, you know, using a shared space of some sort. You know, who ultimately owns the brand? Does the company lose their identity when they're coming into a shared and flexible space? I think that is one of the considerations. There is a productization, I guess, that happens in this circumstance where the whole way this works is that if McKinsey leaves the space, you know, let's say they have a 60-person suite in Toronto, BCG has to be able to move in 30 days later or 60 days later with a little bit of repositioning or else the business doesn't work. I think that's a very good thing. I think the process of ripping everything that studs and rebuilding it every time a tenant leaves is horribly environmentally impactful, very inefficient, um, and I'm not sure in the end provides that much. Um, I think a small amount of aesthetic differentiation in the last mile goes a long way. Um, I'm not sure most employees are like, I need to know that Ernst & Young rewired the HVAC systems and the electrical distribution to my <laughs> Ernst & Young special needs. But I, I do, I think perhaps more importantly, the, one of the big things that's happened during the pandemic is companies have gotten a lot better at listening to their employees. So what I see every day, and we have 25,000 customers, what I see every day is that companies that three years ago would have said our CEO, you know, very into marble or, you know, our, our CFO really wants us to be at Rockefeller Center because that's going to impress our clients are much better at saying like, I think the marketing associates on the team really, really, really want to make sure there's a sweet green nearby or X, Y, Z. And as companies are getting better and better at saying, what do the employees who are actually coming in using the space care about? Very few of those employees care about Squarespace branding or stuff like that. And therefore, I think that concept of company branding is on the way out a little bit because the actual use of the space don't care about it that much, and companies are getting much better at saying, what are the things that actually that these people are asking us for that's going to make them more engaged, that's going to make them have a better day at work? Um, and that's the kind of stuff you see companies pushing on right now. That's interesting because I've always wondered about brand. Like, So I totally agree with what you're saying around keeping the space fairly generic so that you can swap out you know, different customers on, the, on a dime. Um, but I often wondered about the impact of the brands that are using specific spaces and how that plays into the demand, the cost, the exclusivity, if you will, of certain spaces being more attractive to a potential end user than others. So let's imagine, you know, you have a space that has, you know, representation of some of the fang companies or some of the highly coveted companies that, you know, people 
want to work for. And so there's that thing of obviously the learning aspect of being able to go in and sit down and talk to someone casually that works at some of these companies and learn about what is it actually like to be a product manager in whatever, whatever that, you know, that conversation is about. And, and how does that sort of help from a brand perspective or location perspective to drive the demand for the space? And the second part of that question is, you know, this whole idea of pay to play, right? Like I've seen some spaces here in Toronto that kind of have that sort of flavoring. You don't really know for certain what's going on, but it's like, why are some spaces way, way more expensive? I kind of attribute it to like the hotels, right? If you're planning to go on vacation somewhere and you want to stay at, you know, a, an exclusive a, a resort that usually, you know, maybe costs like seven, eight hundred dollars a night. Not that I pay that kind of money, but then <laughs> you're like, OK, you know, uh, you just happen to look and suddenly that same hotel is like two thousand dollars a night. It's because maybe there's a star there, like some celebrity is there and therefore they charge more so that if you want to be part of that, you're going to be paying a premium to be able to be at the same resort with that celebrity. And so I kind of wonder is like, does it does this kind of environment create that? And what is the impact either positively or negatively? Because I think it has pros and cons either way. It's funny you you, you mentioned this because that was something we thought in the early days of the business we were going to see a lot of. And for, for whatever reason, we've almost never seen that in the history of industrious mm-hmm. that, you know, a very hot company that everyone wants to work for moves into a space. It doesn't make the office next door any more likely to go. It doesn't. Um, I do think the the people themselves make a difference. I think spaces that have a great community and this, but it also feels professional. And, you know, I, I think people are hyper aware of who they're working around and, and the vibe and the, the types of social interactions. And am I going to make new friends here? You know, we have a Brooklyn location near where I am right now. That's a lot of young parents, a lot of nonprofits, and people like the the sort of, you know, kind of bonding over stuff like that. But it seems to oftentimes take the form of who is the who are the other people in the space rather than what's the corporate entity they work for. Maybe other providers have have, have observed something different, but that's definitely been our experience. Yeah, as I said, it's interesting because, you know, you sort of look at that and you think, OK, from a, a co-working sort of operator business, it's obviously you're trying to make the space accessible to all, right? But you kind of wonder, you know, in the future, you know, when brands fully embrace it, because I think it's still in sort of the early stages, you know, does that pose a risk, right? Where then suddenly it becomes un- it becomes unaffordable, if you will, for companies to really be truly distributed because there may be, you know, premium spaces that people want to be in. Like even from a you know, I wouldn't necessarily say that you would want to go into a space to start, you know, generating leads for sales, yeah. right? But it's kind of, you start to think about that as you've got these communities that are creating, that are being created. I mean, I heard recently, I forget what company, what company it is where it's kind of theme-based, right? So the people that go to these communities all have a shared interest. And so as 
you know, someone that might be selling trinkets or whatever it is that I'm selling, it's kind of like, hey, if I know that that's mm-hmm. sort of my target audience, I might want to go into that space because that's an opportunity for me to, you know. And so, I mean, it could go in so many different directions. And I think that's the thing is, is that right now we're thinking space, we're thinking about work, we're thinking about very simplistic, hey, there's a, a solution to the problem that we're seeing emerge right now in the marketplace around real estate and work as a result of everybody working from home for the last 30 plus months. And guess what? You don't need to be committed to space from a lease perspective. There are alternatives that can serve that need in a variety of different markets and and neighborhoods and everybody wins, right? So companies win and, and employees win. But I think it's going to be interesting to see, like, like you said, you know, you've been doing it for quite some time, but maybe, you know, would you say that you've achieved critical mass in the last 10 years or are you seeing critical mass kind of approaching as we sort of come out of this, this pandemic? I think we were approaching critical mass and now the definition of critical mass has changed because one of maybe the number one observation about what people want out of a workplace that changed during the pandemic is probably the number one is they want to go a couple days a week, not five days a week. But just under that is the threshold for the commuting distance people are comfortable with transformed. And we see this in our Paris locations and our London locations in New York and Atlanta, that people really started to get frustrated with commutes pre pandemic. Once they hit 40, 45 minutes, And I'm not exaggerating when I say now people start to get frustrated after 15 minutes. And therefore, all of your neighborhood locations are on fire, doing extraordinarily well. And we're just launching more and more locations in mixed-use neighborhoods, and even in places that are really traditionally considered residential. And so now we have to, you know, probably are not a critical mass in the sense that to have a true Toronto area network or a true Chicago area network, If you want to touch not just the great business districts of Chicago, but all of the mixed use and more residential ones, you need 25 locations, not six locations. But it's great for our business. So we're excited to be on that on on that journey. Yeah, that's uh, that's really um, it's really interesting. I think I think the, the future definitely is looking up with respect to that. I think it's great also that if you're, you know, going into more of those residential type neighborhoods to be able to support the neighborhoods that I think are in most need. Like, again, another very common argument is, well, why would I go and use a a co-working space in a downtown location or even sort of a midtown location when my office is there, right? It's kind of like, it doesn't make any sense. If I have to do the commute, then I might as well just go to the office versus if there is something close by that gives me access to the space, but then the flip side of that is, but then are you going to the space to work, like to do the heads down stuff that you could do at home? Or are you going there to meet up with coworkers, which, you know, obviously coworkers are distributed all over the place. And, and again, it's that thing of if it's about community, how do you centralize community? Because centralizing community, again, comes back to having a location that everybody can come to and then you get into that well if i have to go to a co-working space i can go to a cafe or i can go to a hotel or a library or a restaurant where it's mutually convenient for both people because they're all over the place right so those are the types of i think rebuttals that you might get you know when you're when you're trying to sort of position 
co-working as an alternative in the sense that, yes, it absolutely solves the commuting issue and having an alternative location to work at. But then in the same token, it's if the whole objective of co-working is building strong communities, and that's very broad because I don't think, again, it's that just under the umbrella of your brand. It's really sort of expanding into other interacting with other people, because I believe that that's how innovation actually happens. It's not just the people that are within your space. It's talking to other people, sort of bouncing ideas off of each other, just having a friendly conversation that you just learn so much about things that kind of gets the the wheel spinning in your brain, right? So, And what you're describing right now is one of the main considerations I see customers wrestling with, is if our 12 Denver employees all build bonds by being together or in a big metro area if the brooklyn employees get to know each other better and see each other a few days a week and the new jersey ones do and the soho ones do but they're not all gathering all 200 people more than maybe once a quarter does that accomplish a lot of what i want to accomplish and i do think most companies are saying if it builds bonds if it builds affiliation with the institution when you go to university you know if you go to university of toronto you're not seeing all 30,000 students all that often but you might see the people in your major. And in the end, years later, you still feel affiliation to that university. And so I think most companies are saying, if I can get those clusters, that does accomplish a lot of what I would want out of that sort of institutional business community building. Okay. Um, So final comments as we think about the value proposition for business. When I say risk and reward, which one do you think matters more? Risk, but... But I would define it differently than a lot of companies do. I think historically when people talk about risk, the biggest risk they talk about in real estate is what if I get into this lease and then, you know, market rates move or it was sort of financial risk. And I think for a lot of companies now, the biggest risk is have the bonds between my employees fray. Do I have a less engaged workforce and figuring out how to manage that risk and flip it into a benefit and say, I've found a way to have a team of people that love working together, that like this company, that want to keep working here and like their job in a very complicated world would be the great reward that a lot of companies are chasing right now. Yeah, I think that's a that's a really nice way of putting it, because we just this morning I was thinking about how we put a lot of emphasis on the real estate. So like, you know, recent dialogues around, you know, trying to figure out the purpose for for the office and you know, hear about, you know, how do you incentivize people to come back to the office and what amenities and things can you put in the office? And it's all this focus on the office versus to your point, you know, how do employees actually benefit from that is be more focused on the experience that you want your employees to have and then figure out how space fits into that. Right. Because the the degree to which you might rely on space obviously is going to vary from company to company. And that's really driven by, by that that specific experience that you want your employees to have. Okay, so I from what I gather from, you know, what you said, it it seems that, you know, the position that Industrious takes in the market is, you know, you're not necessarily there to disrupt, you're there more to complement. Would you say that's a a fair very accurate, very okay. accurate. Okay. Uh any final thoughts, comments? Uh I think I think this is a very exciting moment. You know, any time where you're seeing companies get better and better and better at listening to their employees and 
kind of democratizing decisions that used to be very top down and very coercive is a wonderful thing. And I trust I trust the collective wisdom of employees to probably care more about sustainability and equity and having workplaces that work for everyone and policies that that I would trust, you know, a CFO to unilaterally make those decisions. So in general, I think the fact that we've moved into this era now where companies are doing a much better job of trying to understand what their employees need and deliver on that as regards workplace policies, et cetera, it's really good at the individual level. And over time, I think it also is going to yield a lot of benefits at the sort of population level as well. That's great. Jamie, thank you very much for your time today. I really enjoyed this conversation, learned a lot. Uh, So thank you for the learning opportunity as well. Thank you. This was great.